Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Before we begin, I just want to dismiss kids to Kids Church. If you are uh, between the age of four and first grade, then you are dismissed for Kids Church. You guys can go back with Greg and Hannah back there and have a, just a boatload of fun, I'm sure. So, um, But I uh, just want to say welcome. Good to have you guys here at River City this morning. And again, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. It is good to have you here. Man, we are so grateful for you. If there's any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected, we would love to do that. And I just really wanted to reiterate uh, Aaron's comments uh, earlier this morning uh, just about vision night being for everybody. Man, if you are just starting to get connected to this church, then I, we would just really encourage you to come check out vision night. It's just one of the best ways for you to really find out what this church is all about and what it looks like to be involved here. And so I just want to invite you. Besides... Becky makes amazing food, and there's just no reason to pass that up. So, um, Anyway, so this morning, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We have been studying the book of Genesis uh, over the course of this fall. The first 11 chapters have been our focus. And what we've seen so far in the book of Genesis is that, is that Genesis is so foundationally important to our faith, not because it shows us the, the how of creation, not because it's all about the how of creation, but because it is about the who of creation. You see, Genesis and, and the rest of the Bible is really all about God. It's about God revealing himself to us, his nature and his character. And so, and so as we begin God's word, what we see is the revelation of who God is and what he is like, and we see that in Genesis. But well, we don't just find out about who God is in Genesis uh, we find out who we are as well. We saw God revealing himself in creation in Genesis 1, but we also saw at the end of Genesis 1 that God made humanity in his image. He said we find out who God is in Genesis, but we also find out who we are. And God tells us in the end of Genesis 1 that we're made in God's image, which means that our identity and our purpose as humanity is to, is to be God's image-bearing representatives in this world. And we spent four weeks talking about what that means because that is just really big deal foundational stuff. But what we saw since chapter 3 is that humanity, we don't embrace that identity and purpose. Instead, we reject that identity and purpose. Instead of being God's image bearers, we choose to enthrone ourselves as God. Instead of God deciding what is true and right and good, we're the ones who want to decide what is true and right and good. We want to be king. We want to be God. And what we said is that that is what's at the root of the first sin in the garden. And it's at the root of what is, it's at the, it's what at the, is at the root of all sin ever since. You see, all sin is not just a bad behavior. It's not just a mistake. You see, our sin is mutinous rebellion. We say, God, you are not a good king. We, we, are, we are the better ones. We'll enthrone ourselves. And that's why the consequences of sin are so severe. That's why in the Bible, the consequences of sin is death. And so we see, uh, since chapter 3, what we've seen is that sin it invades the world and it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. It goes wider and wider from individuals to families to societies and it goes deeper and deeper from actions deep down into people's hearts until we hit rock bottom in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 when we read that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination and the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. We saw how because God is good, and because God is just, he couldn't just stand by and let his image bearers destroy his good world and each other. No, instead God steps in and he intervenes with the flood. And last week we saw, as we read the, the story of the flood in Genesis 6 through 8, we saw God keeping two promises. So I'm being faithful to keep two promises. First is that he's faithful to justly judge sin. But he's also faithful to keep his promise to make a way for sinners to be saved. In Genesis 3.15, we saw how God promised that one day someone from the line of Adam, 
and Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent, that one day someone from the line of Adam and Eve would come and defeat Satan and sin and death. And so in saving Noah and in showing mercy to Noah and starting over with Noah, what we see is that God is being faithful to keep his promises. As we study Genesis 9 this morning and kind of wrap up our our time in in taking a look at the story of Noah, what we're going to see is that God makes another promise this morning. And it's a promise that sets the stage for the restoration of the whole world. But more than that, it's a promise that sets the stage for the restoration of our hearts, for the restoration of our souls, because it's a promise that gives us a glimpse at how God will one day defeat sin altogether. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive in and read our passage and continue our study in Genesis this morning. Jesus, we just come before you this morning. God, we are, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful that you would give us your words so that we might know you and know who you are and what you're like and that we might live in response to that. God, we just come this morning with hearts that are really dependent on you. Some of us, we realize that. Some of us, we don't this morning, God, but we, we are in need of you this morning. God, we need you. God, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say this morning would, would be from you and not from me. God, I don't have any power of my own. Your word has power. You have power. And so what I need is you. God, and what we need is you as well. We need you to be the one that softens our hearts and causes us to be able to hear and respond to your word rightly. God, thank you that you are the one who promises to meet us in your word. And so, God, help us to put ourselves under the authority of your word, God, for our good, for your glory. God, would you speak to us this morning? We pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we pick up the story of Noah and the ark right after Noah has gotten off the flood. We're just going to pick up the last couple of verses of verse 8 to recap where we are, and then we're going to head into chapter 9 this week. So beginning here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And Noah then built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. For as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. For the fear of the Lord, the fear, uh, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea, and they'll be given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will, will be food for you. Just as I gave you all the green plants, I now give you everything. Thank God for meat, right? Continuing on, verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, and for your, for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. So whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God, God has made mankind. Again, you see the image of God being so important here. It's, it's where the value of life comes from. Continue on. We don't have time to get into that this morning. As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood, and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, 
and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all of life. When the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these were the three sons of Noah. And from them came all the people who were scattered over the earth. And Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered inside of his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And then they walked in backwards, and they covered their father's nakedness. And their, father, and their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he found out what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Cain, and the lowest of slaves will be, he will be to his brothers. He, is also, uh, he also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. All right, that was quite a passage this morning. There is some stuff in there, and we don't have time to get to all of it this morning. And I just always want to say this, too. Sometimes we don't always have time to get to all of the stuff that we see in a passage. And if there's ever things that you guys have questions about, I just, would just encourage you to come ask me about those things. I'd love to be able to process that stuff with you. It's not that the things we don't have time to get to every week are, are not that they're not important, but sometimes it's just like you've got to pick and choose some of the things that we have time for this morning. Because as much as I'd love to preach for two and a half hours, I don't know if that's really what you guys want. <laughs> So this morning we, we, we see uh, God's word, and what we're seeing in God's word is, 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 a, is an outworking of what we know to be true in our own hearts. You see, we all want to be in relationships with people that are committed to us. Whether that's friendship or marriage or even in business, we, we, we want to be in relationships with people that are committed to those relationships and committed to us. And we do all kinds of things to ensure those kinds of committed relationships as friends, right? right you make pinky swears. You do friendship bracelets, right? You have secret passwords and handshakes. All that stuff is about the committedness of the relationships you have with your friends. In marriage, you make vows. In vows, you articulate that you're committed to each other, not just in the good times, but in the hard times. In, in business, you sign contracts. And when we moved into this space as a church here, we signed a contract. And it was about us being committed to paying the rent and the landlord being committed to not kick us out, Right? You see, there are, we, we try to do all these kinds of things to ensure the committedness of the relationships that we are in because we all want to be in committed relationships because there is safety and there's security in those things. But as much as we try, none of our relationships are characterized by, being, by perfect commitment. Our friends and our spouses and our business partners, they, they let us down. They're not, they're not perfect people. But in our passage this morning, what we see is a God who is perfectly committed to his relationship with his creation. As we read, there was a word that kept getting repeated. Maybe you heard it. It was the word covenant. It was eight times in the passage God talks about his covenant. 
Covenant is the Bible's language for relationship and devotion and commitment and oneness. And covenants are binding agreements that bring people together or, or people and God together in a relationship. And it's really important that you see this. The, the theme of covenant is one of the most significant and important themes throughout all of Scripture. It's really difficult to overstate the importance of that language of covenant and the theme of covenant throughout Scripture. And as we study Genesis 9 this morning, what we see is God making a covenant, making a promise being committed to a relationship with Noah and with the rest of creation. And in making a covenant with Noah, God is showing that he is committed to his relationship with Noah and he's committed to his relationship with the rest of creation. God's covenant with Noah is his promise of commitment. And it is really critically important because it's a promise that sets the stage for the restoration of the whole world after the flood. But it's also a promise that sets the stage for the restoration of our souls after the fall. And so... As we study this morning, there's three things about God's covenant with Noah that I want us to see this morning. If we're going to understand what's going on here. We need to see the need for God's covenant with Noah. We need to see the terms of God's covenant. And we need to see the sign of God's covenant this morning. So we begin. We see the, the first thing that we see is the need for God's covenant with Noah. See, all covenants arise out of need. A covenant is a binding agreement that brings two or more parties together in a, into a committed relationship. And we make covenants because by default, we are not committed to each other. You see, if you have a two-year-old, you know that. The default role of a human heart. Two-year-olds are really, really committed to other people sharing with them. And they are equally committed to not sharing with anyone else. Right? They are, two-year-olds are incredibly committed. You see, but they're committed to themselves. And as much as we try to mask that as humans, you see, the default, the default view of our hearts is to be committed to ourselves, not to be committed to others. You see, we don't make covenants for the, the good times. You make covenants for the bad times. That's when you, when you get married, right? You, your vow isn't when things are always good and when things are always amazing, I promise to be faithful to you. No, it says for better and worse, for richer and poorer. When you, when you sign your mortgage, right, you agree to pay your mortgage if you get a raise or if you get laid off. You, you still agree to pay no matter what happens even if there are bad times. And so what we see this morning is the, so what is the need that prompts God's covenant with Noah? You see, and the need is this, that even after the flood, sin was still a problem, and people were still under God's just judgment of sin. The flood was a result of God's just judgment of sin, but the flood did not get rid of sin altogether. We read in verses 20 and 23, just as soon as Noah could grow some grapes, the dude got drunk and naked, Right? Just as soon as he could grow some grapes, that's, that's where it went. And, and what we see further on is that his son Ham comes in and sees him drunk and naked, and he goes out and he tells his brothers. And there are some commentators who seem to think that this passage infers that he did more than just see his father, but I, I just don't think that's even necessary, and I don't really think that's what the passage is talking about. But whatever happened, what is clear is that Ham humiliated and he dishonored his father. And he apparently sought to make his brothers a party to that humiliation. You see, sin is alive and well after the flood. People are still looking for other things to satisfy and give life. People are looking to compare themselves to one another to, to get their validation from God. You see, and the curse of sin is still alive and well after the flood as well. The chapter ends, verse 29, Noah lived 950 years and then what? Then he died. You see, the curse is still there. Sin is still alive and well after the flood. You see, the flood did not solve the problem of sin. One commentator writes it this way, the flood was a one-time response to a particularly dire situation, but all it did was treat an especially bad set of symptoms. 
You see, sin survived the flood because sin is not out there. Sin is in here. Sin is not out there. Sin is in here. In verse 8, in chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 8, what we see is God thinking about his promise to him, you know, and he says, I'll never again curse the ground because of humans, right? He says, not because they're going to do great from now on. No, he says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You see, it wasn't outside influence that caused Noah or his sons to sin. It was the sinfulness of their own hearts. You see, there were no bad influences. God had literally just gotten rid of all of the bad influences in the world. And still, sin happened. You see, this is just, this is free. You see, some people think that the way to avoid sin is, is to avoid sinners. And not only does that, has that never worked for anyone, it's, it will never work because it's impossible. You see, because wherever you go, your sinful heart goes with you. You see, sin is not out there. Sin is in here. And the most dangerous thing that we can do is believe that, is that sin is something that we need to avoid. Sin is, yes, we need, do need to avoid sin, but sin is not out there. It's in here. It needs to be something that we deal with on a heart level. You see, our mutiny against God, our rebellious behavior, it comes from a heart that has rejected God. You see, the real problem is our hearts. One commentator, again, he writes this way, the flood could wipe away particular evil societies from the earth, but it could not wipe away evil because that lives in every human heart. In order to destroy evil by force, it would have been necessary to kill all people, not just most of them, even the most righteous, even Noah would have had to die. You see, sin is still a problem. And because God is just, sin still needs to be judged. And so God comes and he intervenes. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make a promise. He says, I'm never going to judge sin like this again. God is not promising never to judge sin. He's saying, I'm never going to do it like this again. And this brings us to the terms of God's covenant. You see, every covenant has terms. It's what's being promised in that covenant, who, who it's being promised to, and what are the conditions of, of the covenant. We see verses 9 through 11, we see the terms of God's covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. He says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you and the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. He says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. You see, the first thing that we see are the participants in God's covenant. You see, it's between God and all of creation, which includes all, all of creation. The list there is all-encompassing. It's everyone and everything God is making a promise. He's saying, I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. This is an unlimited covenant because it is applied to everyone and everything in every generation. You see, my marriage with my wife is not an unlimited covenant. It's limited. It's just between me and her, right? It's not Utah, okay? So, so it is a limited covenant. But this covenant that God makes is an unlimited covenant because it is between everyone and everything you see, the next thing that we see is the promise of God's covenant. You see, he says, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And what God is saying is, he's saying, I'm, I'm not going to judge sin like this ever again. No matter how bad it gets, I'm never going to wipe everyone and everything out. I'm not going to do it that way again. No more do-overs. This was it. It's, we're, I'm never going to do this again. And that's really good news for us. But man, that was way better news for Noah. 
You see, without God's covenant, there's no way Noah could ever complete his calling. What we see is God says, be fruitful and multiply. There's no way Noah could have done that if, if he was always worried about this another flood. You see, without God's covenant, they'd be constantly worried, constantly fearful because they were still sinners. Can you imagine the PTSD that Noah would have had if, without God's covenant? Imagine the anxiety that he would have had without God's covenant, without God's promise that he would never destroy the world again. We made it two whole chapters the first time before sin entered the world. After Noah, we, make it a, we barely make it a half a chapter in, and sin is still destroying everything. You see, the covenant is good news because it's God's promise that he will never destroy the world again. You see, the flood proved that God is faithful to keep his promises. And God makes another promise, never to destroy the world again. You see, so that's a promise that's good news because it means we can have life and we can enjoy life and we can have the blessing of life because God promises that he's never going to wipe all life out again. But what's even better than the promise of God's covenant are the conditions. You see, did you notice the conditions of God's covenant as we read? Well, you didn't because there are none. There are no conditions. God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. I'm never going to destroy the earth. You see, God is just going to hold up his end of the bargain no matter what happens. Noah could not mess it up, and the rebellious and hard-hearted Israelites could not mess it up. And even the Nazis, in the wickedness of that, they could not mess it up because their, God's conditions were that he was going to be faithful no matter what happened. You see, God is promising to withhold his just judgment of sin until the end of time, no matter what happens. You see, this covenant is an unlimited covenant because it's with everyone, but it is also an unconditional covenant. You need to see this. Only God can make unlimited and unconditional covenants. He's the only one that can make a covenant like that. And he's the only one that could ever keep a covenant like that. You see, when we moved into this space, we signed a lease. It's kind of like a covenant. There was a bunch of conditions. We get to use this space if we pay our rent. And if we don't pay our rent, we don't get to use it anymore. And there was all kinds, there was like 19 pages in this lease that we signed to when we moved into this space. One of the conditions is you'll pay your rent even if war breaks out. Not even joking, literally in there. And I read it, we're just like, I don't even know. Okay, I guess we're just going to have to say yes to that. I don't. Okay, like... There were conditions. There's conditions with every covenant except for the ones that God makes. You see, God's covenant is different. It's contingent on God's faithfulness, not Noah's, not mine, not yours. Commentators refer to this kind of covenant as a covenant of grace. God did not owe it to Noah to make this covenant with him. Noah did not deserve it, neither do you or I. There is nothing about us that deserves this kind of covenant of grace with God. It is pure grace. You see, the terms of this covenant are good news. They're the kind of covenant that you just like, as soon as you can get a pen, you sign it, right? But the question is, how, how, is God, how can God still be good and just if he's going to choose not to judge sin? Well, I think that we see the answer to that question in the sign of the covenant. You see, every covenant has a sign an outward sign or symbol that serves as a reminder that there was a covenant that has been entered into. If you are married, you have a, most likely you have a ring around one of your fingers. It's a sign of the covenant that you are in. Now, the sign of God's covenant that we see here in the chapter 9 of Genesis is that it's a rainbow. 
And this is not the first rainbow. The text doesn't infer to us that this is the very first rainbow. Instead, what rather is happening is God is infusing meaning into the rainbow. One commentator writes, The designation of the rainbow as a sign of the covenant doesn't suggest this was the first rainbow ever. Rather, that the function of a sign is connected with the significance that is attached to it. You see, we give wings, rings at, at weddings. And the significance of the rings is that they are both valuable and they are both circular. And the idea is that, that the covenant that we're entering into is incredibly valuable. And it's circular means that it does not end. And so the, the rings are a significant form of, they're the sign of the covenant of marriage. So the question is, what's the significance of the sign of God's covenant with Noah? This is really good. <laughs> this is so good. You see, the sign of God's covenant with Noah is a rainbow, but our English translation, it kind of, kind of masks a little bit, kind of blurs a little bit the significance of that, because verse 14, it reads, or I have set my rainbow in the clouds. The text literally reads, I have set my bow in the clouds. You see, the word for bow or rainbow here is the word gesed. It's a Hebrew word, and it actually means war bow or battle bow. And yes, God is referring to a rainbow. It's not just some weird thing that's going on. God is referring to the rainbow, but there's something more than that that's going on here. You see, the significance of the sign of the bow in the sky is that God has laid down his war bow in the heavens. You see, a war bow is a sign of hostility. It's a sign of, of hostility against an enemy. And what God is saying is, God is saying, I have laid up my war bow in the heavens his bow in the sky is not a sign of war and hostility anymore. Rather, it's a one that has been laid up. It is one that is now a sign of peace. You see, when you see a rainbow, you're supposed to be reminded that we should all be dead because of our sin. That the rain should not have stopped. And that God should have justly judged all humanity with the flood. But that God is gracious and loving and compassionate and merciful and kind and that he has spared the lives of Noah and on ours and as well, not because we deserve it, because out of the goodness of who he is. What we're meant to remember when we see the rainbow is a God who has hung up his war bow against those who have made him his enemy. And God has made his peace with them. You see, but the significance of the rainbow is greater than Noah or the readers of Genesis could understand great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he says that we know that the reason that God is, is able to lay up his bow is because it is pointed upwards towards heaven. And see, in the flood, God aimed the arrows of his just wrath towards sin down on man and down on creation. But in the rainbow, God is foreshadowing the direction that his just wrath for sin will ultimately go. You see, the rainbow isn't just a sign that God's promised that he will never deal with human sin by flooding the world. It's an indication of how he is going to deal with it in the end. You see, Charles Spurgeon, again, he writes, God is not stopped being a God of judgment. God is not stopped being a God of, of just wrath for sin. But now God's aiming his arrows of wrath somewhere else. He is aiming his arrows of wrath at someone else. You see, what we're seeing here is a, is a foreshadowing, is a prefiguring of the work of Jesus. You see, God is saying, I will never again destroy earth again. I will never judge sin like this again. I won't get justice for sin by shooting the arrows of, of my wrath into men. Instead, I'll shoot it into myself, into my own son. You see, that's what the cross is. You see, on the cross, what Jesus is doing is he is absorbing God's just wrath for our sin god is good and god is righteous and god is holy and god is absolutely opposed to sin and you and i we are all sinners by nature and choice we have all rebelled against god 
And what the cross is, is God absorbing that wrath. The cross is God pointing the arrows of his just wrath for sin at himself. You see, God does not just wipe our slates clean. The cross shows us that God pays the debt that we owe himself so that we could go free. Tim Keller writes it this way. He said, Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath. He got the lightning so that you and I could have the rainbow. You see, fear is an incredible motivator, but it never lasts. Grace and love, on the other hand, those are motivations that will never run dry. Those are motivations that do not run dry. You see, the cross reminds us how committed God is to his relationship with us and his relationship with his creation. It reminds us of his gracious commitment to us, and that's what enables our commitment to him. You see, in God's gracious commitment that we're reminded of in the sign of God's covenant with Noah, and it's God's gracious commitment that we are reminded of in the sign of his new covenant with us in Jesus. You see, the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant with Noah, and communion is the sign of God's covenant with you and I through Christ. Matthew 26, verse 26 and 28 reads this. Jesus, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave, the, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, what we are doing in communion is we are remembering. We are remembering the covenant of God's grace that is given to us by faith in Jesus. We're remembering that what we should have gotten was God's wrath for our sin. But with Jesus, what we see is his broken body and his shed blood. We see that he took on God's just wrath of our sin so that we might go free. Jesus absorbed God's just judgment of our sin so that in wiping out sin, God did not also have to wipe out all sinners. You see the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and of his blood which were broken and were shed for us so that we could so that God could be both the just judge of sin and the merciful savior of sin. As you see, what we are doing in communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. That's what we are doing. We are celebrating the sign of the covenant that God has made with us. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you any more than just wearing a wedding band makes you married. Instead, communion is a sign of the covenant God has made with us. It's a way that we remember who he is, and all that he has done. But unlike God's covenant of grace with Noah, this new covenant requires that we respond. You see, the conditions of this new covenant are that we must put our faith in Jesus. Nobody had to receive God's covenant with Noah. God just said, I'm going to be faithful to never do this again. Noah didn't need to respond. No one else needed to respond. But God's covenant with us in, in through the gospel is one that we need to respond to. It's one that we have to accept. It's one that we must receive. And that's the only condition. And so this morning, if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, if you have put your hope in him to be the one that makes you right with God and the one who absorbs the God's just wrath that is due your sin, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration. Do it as a remembrance of the joy that you see in God's grace that is made known to you in the person and the work of Jesus. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. And as you do, as you go back and as you take communion, there's two tables, one in the back, on the left and on the right, and 
You just dip the bread and the juice, and that's how you take communion here. Nobody's going to dismiss you. You go on your own and just encourage you, as you do, talk to God. Ask him. Ask him to show you his war bow of peace. Ask him to show you the cross that has secured his peace with you. Ask him to show you the storm of his wrath that Jesus entered on your behalf. And ask him to remind you how committed he is. Ask him to put those truths deep into your heart. Ask him to cause those truths to change you, to change who you are and how you relate to him. Ask, those, ask God to cause those truths, let those things fuel your obedience to him. Let those things fuel your devotion to him. Let God's commitment to you, let it fuel your passion for him. Let it fuel your love for him. Let it fuel your love for others that they would come to know and love and trust in the God who has made peace with his enemies. Do you, do you see why the gospel is such good news? Do you see why the gospel must not be the first thing that we believe, but the thing that we believe which impacts everything? The gospel is not just the first stone. It is the cornerstone. The gospel is not just one thing in our faith. It is the hub of the wheel at which everything must connect to. The gospel allows us to relate to God, not out of fear, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but out of love out of joy, out of grace with him. You see, what we deserve are the arrows of God's just wrath for our sin. But what we get is Jesus. What we get is God himself who has come to make us new. That we might have a right relationship with him. You see, we need to remember the sign of the covenant. That's why we take communion every week, because we need to remember. We forget so often who God is and all that he has done for us. We forget that the basis for our relationship with him is not on what we do, but on what he has already done. We forget. I forget. What we need to do is what we need to do is remember. You see, remembering, it changes things. That's why the sign of God's covenant with Noah wasn't just this one-time thing. He said, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant with you. You see, you remember something. I wear this ring because I, just, I don't need to wear it one day. On the day that I got married, I wear it every day because it is a reminder of my covenant with my wife. The rainbow is a reminder of God's covenant with all creation and communion. It is a reminder of God's covenant with us in the cross of Christ that secures our peace with him and our relationship with him because it reminds us that God is committed to us no matter what. That, that's, what it, that's what changes us. That's what enables us to love and serve and follow him out of, out of joy not out of duty or obligation or out of fear, out of love. You see, the gospel is good news. It's the thing that changes us. It's the thing that transforms our hearts and our lives. The gospel is a thing that we must remember. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you.
God, what we deserve is the, the storm of your wrath for our sin. God, our mutinous rebellion against you. God, what we deserve is just judgment for our sin. Ah, oh, but God, in the cross, what we get is grace. God, cause us to remember that. Cause that to sink deep into our hearts. Cause that to be the truth that transforms everything about who we are. God, cause it to be the thing that, that enables us to run to you when we sin instead of from you. God, cause your grace to be the thing that, that forms and founds our relationship with you. God, we need you and we need to remember you. And so in communion this morning, God, our remembrance of you is not different than we do any other week. God, I pray that you would help us sense the goodness of our remembrance of you this morning. You would help us by your grace to sense the weightiness of that covenant that you have made with us. God, the covenant of grace through Christ. God, we need you. Thank you that you have so abundantly met us in our need for you. We love you, God. Thank you that you have loved us first. In your good name we pray. Amen.